You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Zoom agrees to change what it still sort of regards as a feature and not a bug. Industrial control system vulnerabilities are reported and patched. Microsoft issues 77 fixes on Patch Tuesday. Adobe has a relatively light month for patches. Marriott is hit with a large fine from the UK's Information Commissioner's Office. And an investigation report traces disinformation about a 2016 Washington murder to Russia's SVR Foreign Intelligence Service. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, July 10th, 2019. Last night, Zoom revised its video conferencing service to completely remove the local web server and add an option to its menu that enables users to remove the app. Two other changes planned for release Friday will save new users' choice of the Always Turn Off My Video option and will permit returning users to turn video off by default. Zoom says it made these changes in response to widespread outcry against the way a user could have been unwittingly joined to a conference with their video on. The company had viewed these controversial aspects of its service as features, not bugs, design elements that they said were essential to our seamless join process. The company also addressed the possibility of distributed denial of service conducted against users of its conferencing platform. It's striking to see the extent to which Zoom has stuck to its metaphorical guns. The aspects of their platform that attracted such odium earlier this week were, the company says, deliberate design choices made to provide an easy and pleasant user experience. They're listening to the users and changing the production to suit the market's mood, but one has the distinct impression that they think the marketplace of opinion has this one largely wrong. Tenable has reported a range of ICS vulnerabilities, many of them involving systems used in the operation of power plants. The vulnerabilities have been disclosed to the vendors responsible for the systems, and they appear to have been addressed with patches or other mitigations. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, the young organization known by its acronym CISA, has issued a number of advisories on the industrial control system vulnerabilities this week. The vendors who have been fixing their systems include major providers, Siemens, Schneider, and Emerson. Yesterday, of course, was Patch Tuesday. Microsoft brought out 77 fixes, many of them addressing issues in Explorer and Edge. The patches fix two zero-days that are being actively exploited in the wild. The first is a vulnerability in Spooler Windows OS, a Windows process, The second is an issue that arises when Win32K improperly handles objects in memory. This vulnerability has been found in a targeted attack against an Eastern European target where the tactics and techniques looked a lot like those used by Fancy Bear, that is, Russia's GRU military intelligence service. 
Both of the zero days are rated important but not critical. There were 15 critical patches. The one that seems to have drawn the most attention from observers is CVE 2019-0785, a remotely exploitable memory corruption issue that affects all versions of Windows Server released since 2012. Adobe had a relatively light set of patches, offering fixes for issues in Dreamweaver, Experience Manager, and Bridge CC. None were rated critical. It's perhaps noteworthy that Flash, which normally takes a star turn on Patch Tuesday, was completely absent from this month's list. In the past week or so, we've seen substantial fines levied against global organizations for GDPR violations. This has many companies taking a fresh look at their approaches to risk and regulation. The CyberWire's Tamika Smith examines best practices to make sure your plans fit the bill. It's been just over a year since GDPR was implemented and it's inspiring other countries to create their own data privacy policies and laws. As this transition takes effect, CIOs are trying to create multiple strategies around new laws and regulations that are being developed. Here to shed more light on this topic is Mike Lyons. He's the CISO for Calibra. They raised $100 million recently through their Series E funding route and was recently valued at a billion dollars, raising the company's status to unicorn. Welcome to the program, Mike. How are you, Tamika? I'm doing great. It's safe to say you guys are doing something right. We're in a good place. <laughs> so like I said before, the GDPR passed its one-year milestone in May, and countries including the U.S. are developing their own regulations to tighten up data privacy and security. What advice do you have to CIOs who are watching this transition? I think you, you highlight it well. There's a lot of additional regulations coming state by state, country by country. So organizations are going to need to figure out how they can quickly adopt these standards. Many of these new regulations will be based on GDPR, but look at ways that they're different and look at ways that they can adopt them and really start to think about a privacy platform more of a data governance platform rather than single one-off technologies. So when you say look at a platform, what platforms would you suggest or at least put on their radar? When you're looking at a platform, you need to be able to understand that data is going to take all shapes and forms and what those data are and how they're tagged and classified is a very difficult and challenge that could never be accomplished through, through the manual labor that we have today. You could probably hire a million people to do it, but that's very not economical. And so looking at ways to automate those classifications uh, are going to be critical. It's about knowing where your data is so you know how to protect it better. Well, if I know my data is sitting in this, you know, this DMZ or on this web server and is available through these mechanisms, I know that if it's important data on there, I'm going to add additional layers of protection. But one of the challenges that governments have faced for so long, they take a broad brush when they apply things like a classification. When you have a technology that allows you to you know, be a little bit more surgical or more precise is probably even a better word with those data, you can then put the appropriate levels of control in place to protect that system, protect the data that's sitting on that system. That's sort of the security view. The business view of that is I have this data. Let me make sure that I'm using the data appropriately. So, for example, I have, I'm, a, I'm a person who's looking for sales data about a product that I'm trying to come up with a new package or offering to my potential customers. Well, there's another person who's responsible for the data itself and owns that data. So when I go to find data that I can use to 
make sure that I'm targeting the right folks and you know they're not just being spammed, et cetera, I will make a request of, of an individual or a C, I'll find a data set and I'll make a request. And what essentially comes on the back side of that is that someone else is going to say, well, you can use my data, but these are the conditions for which you need to abide by. So a new area I would like to explore is the security compliance incident response plan. What are the do's and don'ts of having one? Well, I, I think do's are have one. <laughs> um, definitely the most important <laughs> one, right? You have sure. to have one. <laughs> yes. If you don't, you're in trouble. Um, you know, the, the, the one you need to allow for and understand for is that there's never a security incident that involves one team within a company, right? Those are not really incidents. Those are just general events. And so you need to be able to work and work collaboratively across all of the parts of your business. This can be parts that you may not have thought through, right? This could be, I need finance involved because I need a bag of money. These are things that are real nowadays. The second thing about incident response plan is don't just think about it as an incident, like this nation state decided to break into my network and now they're ruining my day. You've got to think about it in the context of things that are outside of your control, like a vulnerability that is released by a vendor through a you know, responsible disclosure program. But now that's an incident for me because I use that vendor software and I have to act and I have to act quickly. Mm-hmm. And vendor software has definitely been one of the weaknesses of companies. Well, absolutely. And, we, and we're going to use vendor software, right? We're, we're always going to use vendor software. I think the important thing there is, is making sure that you're working with vendors that have an understanding of how to remediate their, you know, their flaws. Software has bugs. It's the, the nature. But I think the, the third real component of this is around privacy because there is a requirement to respond to privacy-related events, uh, specifically under GDPR, in 72 hours. That's a pretty aggressive timeline, quite frankly. And these are things where CIOs and CISOs are being challenged is how, how do you do that? How do you, you know, get in contact with the, with the appropriate people to, to notify them there? With all of those aspects, the reality is you need to practice and, and, and work hard towards getting that muscle memory generated so you can, in fact, respond appropriately. Mike Lyons, thanks for joining the program. We definitely have a lot to learn here. Thank you, Tamika. This has been great. That's our own Tamika Smith reporting. The UK's Information Commissioner's Office handed out its second big fine of the week for a GDPR violation. After levying a £183 million fine against British Airways, that's $229 million US, the ICO announced yesterday that it was fining Marriott just over £99 million, that's $123 million, for a breach the hotel chain suffered in 2018 as it integrated the reservation system it acquired when it bought the Starwood properties. The fine amounts to 3% of the chain's annual revenue, one percentage point lower than the maximum allowable fine under GDPR. Marriott, disappointed by the ruling, intends to appeal. The two big fines are widely seen as representing some sort of shift at the ICO, which had previously taken a lighter hand with data privacy fumbles, in some cases issuing warnings without fines, giving organizations a period of a few months to resolve their problems, and so on. This week's heavy fines are regarded as likely to change businesses' risk calculations and move them away from a willingness to accept risk and toward a determination to mitigate it. Transferring the risk of punitive action under GDPR seems a less likely option. A Yahoo News investigative report has concluded that Russia's SVR Foreign Intelligence Service developed and disseminated a particularly ugly piece of disinformation during the last U.S. presidential election season. Seth Rich, a young data director working for the U.S. Democratic National Committee, was murdered early Sunday morning, July 13, 2016. Local authorities concluded, and continue to believe, 
that he was the victim of a botched armed robbery, a mugging gone wrong. But three days after the killing, the SVR fabricated a bogus intelligence report that retailed the story that Rich was a whistleblower who was killed by a hit squad working for then-presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. The story was that he was a disappointed supporter of Senator Sanders, who intended soon to be in touch with federal authorities about criminal corruption involving the Democratic Party's nominee. Yahoo's report points out that there's no particular evidence that Rich supported any particular Democratic candidate, and that he seems not to have been the disappointed Bernie bro the disinformation represented him as being. The story was first leaked to whatdoesitmean.com, a site with a reputation for being a conduit for Russian information operations. On August 9th, WikiLeaks' Julian Assange strongly suggested that the late Mr. Rich had been the source of leaked DNC emails WikiLeaks had received. Mr. Assange offered a $20,000 reward for information leading to the solution of the crime, noting at the time that our sources take risks. There's been scant evidence that Seth Rich was in contact with WikiLeaks. The story nonetheless was featured for some months by RT and Sputnik, both Russian government media outlets. It was also amplified by inauthentic social media accounts operated by the St. Petersburg-based Internet Research Agency. The Assange connection is interesting, suggesting, as it does, at least a shared worldview in the Kremlin and the guest quarters of Ecuador's London embassy, if not actual coordination. Yahoo's report offers an interesting reconstruction of how the story grew its legs. The lie received its customary bodyguard of truth, in this case the sad street murder of a young man, and was designed to hit a fault line in public opinion, where those disposed to see corruption would find their suspicions apparently confirmed. Either the SVR or its sister service, the FSB, by the way, are generally thought to be Cozy Bear. Whichever KGB institutional descendant actually runs Cozy Bear probably doesn't matter much, unless you're a Kremlin insider concerned with agency equities. In the end, of course, they're all working for Papa Bear. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. 
Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Craig Williams. He's the head of Talos Outreach at Cisco. Craig, uh, great to have you back. Um, you all recently uh, published some new research. Uh, this is about uh, something that you're referring to as Splevo. What's going on here? Uh, well, so Splevo is basically an exploit kit that we've been tracking. Um, you know, a lot of people think exploit kits kind of died because they really went from an incredibly common thing to something that we just don't quite see as much anymore. Uh, you know, like if you think back about it, I would say the most popular heyday of the exploit kits was probably four years ago when we had the Angular exploit kit out there basically compromising everybody. And we were able to show that they were basically making millions of dollars, uh, you know, super profitable, very widespread. But as word got out and as browsers started hardening, they've gotten a little bit out of, you know, popularity just because the difficulty involved and the redirection systems are very complicated. And so the fact that Splevo is back and pretty effective, it's it's a good notable piece of malware to look at. And so what are some of the details here that you need to share? Well, so the way that exploit kits work is they find a legitimate website and find a way to inject some code into it. And this can be done through like a, a redirection technique. It can be done by compromising the website. So, you know, let's say one of the people with access to the web page isn't using two-factor authentication and is sharing credentials on various sites, Right. I know no one would do that, <laughs> but it does happen from time to time. And so what happens is the attackers can then get onto those sites and add in the code, or they can find a vulnerability on the server and add in the code. And it's very, very difficult to detect. I mean, typically when we're talking about these redirects, it's like one line of code, right? Hmm. One little link hidden in the web page, And so you can literally be looking at it and it's very, very easy to miss, especially if you're not super technically savvy. You know, it'll look like you just went to a website it redirected once or twice. And meanwhile, in the background, your web browser was interrogated. It tried to figure out if you were vulnerable to any of the uh, you know, exploits that it was using. And if it was, it would feed you one. And if not, it would redirect you to something else like a phishing website, potentially. So in terms of, of detection, is this the kind of thing where if I'm, for example, running antivirus or something like that, is that going to get pinged by this? Potentially, right? Um, a lot of the payloads, a lot of the loaders are often detected. However, we have seen several examples of loaders for stuff like this that are generated on the fly. And to make it worse, these sites have a system in place so that you can't like automatically harvest the binaries, right? You can't automate detection very easily. And they do that by looking at the redirection paths and the source and the refer paths. And if they don't match up to the right sites, you won't actually get the malware sample. So when we see something like this, there's a couple of different layers you can block it at, right? The first one would be the DNS lookup. Right, Maybe we know that the site's compromised because we saw it through our telemetry system, and so we blocked the website for a couple hours until they can have a time to clean up that broken link. Right, uh, So that would be done at like you know Umbrella or something like that. Uh, another way to do it would be with like a, 
a web inspection, right? So something like our web security appliance or something like uh, Firepower or any content inspection box out there, right? Now, those may not be super effective, uh, but that's, you know, where you can go to something on the endpoint, right? So like uh, endpoint antivirus, something like that, uh, like AMP, that's the other layer. So there's really, you know, let's say two really good layers to focus on this type of stuff, right? The DNS lookup and on the endpoint. Because in those two places, you're going to have the capabilities to see what you need to see. And on the endpoint, you can actually do a little bit more advanced inspection and you know, look for things like obfuscation techniques that's not used by normal software. All right. Well, the, uh, the blog post is titled Welcome Splevo, New Exploit Kit Full of Old Tricks. Check it out. It's on the uh, Talos website. Craig Williams, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. <laughs>